How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in right relationship with God. When we sin, we're no longer walking by the Spirit. That's described by different terms in the Bible. We're not abiding, we're not walking, uh, we're not uh, enjoying our fellowship with God. And the way to recover is through simple confession, admitting, acknowledging our sin to God, and instantly we are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we always take a few moments of silent prayer at the beginning of class to make sure that we are focused in right relationship with God and that this is a time that will be spiritually profitable for us. So let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we have freedom in this country to gather together to proclaim the truth of your word, to study it, to come to understand all of its teaching, all the ramifications and implications that we can derive from the text, that no matter how profound and deeply we study your word, there's always more to learn, more to discover, and there are many different ways in which God the Holy Spirit uses it in our lives to uh, mature us, to give us wisdom and skill in living, and to challenge us to uh, transform our lives to reflect the character of Jesus Christ. Father, we continue to pray for this nation and for our our president, for those in the Supreme Court who are going to be uh, evaluating uh, issues related to marriage. We pray that you would give them wisdom and insight and that you might continue to protect the divine institution of marriage in this nation from uh, by, by means of the laws of this nation. Father, we pray for others in the administration that you might restrain the influence of those whose objectives are evil, and self and, and self destructive open the eyes of many to the realities of the dangers of this world uh, internationally, the dangers that threaten us from the possibility of a nuclear Iran. Uh, many are blinded self blinded to what is happening because they just don 't want to face the reality and the consequences of war, and as horrible as that might be the uh, pales in comparison to the horrors of a nuclear terrorist nation. Father, we pray for us that as believers we might be relaxed and we might be a a beacon of hope and light to those around us and that we might apply your word in a way that brings honor and glory to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, and we are continuing in our study of the opening lines of salutation. Now, this has taken a little bit longer than it usually would, simply because we, as soon as we got into this, we cracked into one of the more challenging doctrines that's covered in the Scripture, and that relates to this whole area of foreknowledge and election and predestination. And these are terms that have been, as I've explained over the last three or four lessons, have been grossly misunderstood for a number of different reasons. 
And I know that sometimes I haven't probably been as clear as I should because I've been plowing some new ground, and every now and then, I learned this a long time ago listening to pastors, that when sometimes there was a mist in the in the pulpit and there was a fog in the pew, it was usually because uh, it was the pastor was plowing some new ground and he was working through it just a few inches ahead of, of us. And uh, that's true. I've experienced that many times over my years as a pastor. You need 50 hours a week to study and you're teaching three times and you just don't have that kind of time. There's not there. There's just so much to study and so much to read. Even today, I cracked open an article on the salutation in First Peter, and I started reading through it. And I thought, I wish I'd seen this about five weeks ago. There's always something that you can learn from a number of different sources. So uh, it's just a matter that for a pastor to constantly have that time. Sometimes there's just it's not a matter of uh, of how he spends his time as much as it's there's just not enough time in a finite world to really drill down on everything. So I'm going to try to synthesize this a little bit for you tonight so that we can uh, summarize what's going on here in these phrases and then move uh, move right on down the, uh, down the line. So we're going to tie these three things together in terms of these prepositional clauses in verse 2 t- today because this is really setting... A, 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 an orientation for the reader, as you would, as a, a reader would read the the opening, it would give some clues as to some themes that would be brought out in the scope of the letter, or some things that the writer wanted to remind the reader of, to lay a foundation prior to uh, what he was going to challenge them with in that particular letter. So here we read initially Peter say, identifying himself as the apostle of Jesus Christ, and he's writing as we have it translated in most translations, although there's a few that do move the word elect up to the beginning. Uh, the word elect in the Greek actually comes prior to the uh, the statement of the location of the recipients and the identification of the recipients. So it's elect to the pilgrims of the dispersion or the diaspora in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by means of, and that's really the best way to translate that, by means of the sanctification of the Spirit, for the purpose of, it's directional here at the end, for the purpose of obedience, so that we are choice, as we've uh, translated the word elect, choice ones, for the purpose not just it's not just related to our positional identification with Christ but that is for a purpose and that is the purpose of obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ now we'll come back to look at that a little more as we go through this tonight so here are the three prepositional phrases that all modify this adjective elect or choice ones so all are given equal weight, as you see how I've laid that out. It's choice according to the foreknowledge of God. That gives us the basis, the foundation for his, for his identification of us as choice ones. It's in line with a standard, and that standard is what he knew from eternity past. Uh, it's by means of something. So it's not just hang, it doesn't just hang out there in isolation. But he, he has identified us as choice ones 
through a certain activity or by means of a certain activity, which is identified here as the sanctifying ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We have to look at that. And then it's for a purpose. And just as Paul states in Ephesians uh, 2.10, we've been saved for good works. Now, that's just that's not morality. We have to distinguish between that, and we'll come back and talk about that a little bit. But the Christian life isn't simply morality. The Christian life is a life that is lived by the power of God the Holy Spirit. Now, that gets us into experiential sanctification, which is a different issue than what we have here in the second phrase. It's for the purpose of good works, but those good works are performed as a result of our walk by the Holy Spirit. So it is, we have a volitional decision to walk by the Holy Spirit, and we also exercise our volition to choose each time we're obedient and to be obedient by means of God the Holy Spirit so that the Christian life is produced, it's energized, it's empowered by God the Holy Spirit. In many, many Christian denominations and theological systems, after you're saved, you just go out and and obey the Scripture with no understanding of the role of God the Holy Spirit, no understanding of what it means to abide in Christ, no understanding of what it means to walk in the light, and that as a believer you can either walk in the light or walk in the darkness, walk by the Spirit or walk according to the to the sin nature, and how to recover. So they never understood the, understand these things, and in those theological systems and in those denominations, the spiritual life basically becomes a, a life where you're pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's all in terms of human effort with no understanding that you can be doing it in the power of your sin nature where it has no eternal value whatsoever, or you can do it by the Holy Spirit, but you have to understand how to recover from sin when you sin, and that's the role of 1 John 1, nine. Okay, just as a reminder, when we looked at the Greek words, three main Greek words that are, have to do with election, uh, the verb eklegomai, the adjective eklektos, and the noun ekloge. Okay, the verb uh, has the idea of choosing out or selecting someone, usually for the purpose of commissioning them or appointing them to a purpose. So it's not just the idea of going any, meeny, miny, mo. Uh, the point is to, they are being appointed to something significant. The word eklektos is normally translated elect or chosen. It is an adjective, and it actually, as we see, has the idea of being choice or excellent. It is pointing out the best of something. And why are they the best? It's that qualitative idea, and I'm going to clarify that a little bit more as we go through. And it indicates that that there is a, a group of select ones, and not that's not talking about God making a choice. It's talking about the quality, and we looked at that, saw that this is also the idea in the Old Testament, in the word that's translated um, elect often, bahir. It has the idea of the choice or the select or the most excellent ones. I've used the illustration of the magnum bar, the select almonds, the highest quality of almonds, and this is the same idea that we saw in Matthew twenty-two fourteen. Now, this is foundational, I think. This this whole 
uh, parable that the Lord told about the wedding feast, and uh, he sends out his messengers to invite everyone. But some are not willing to come. And so as a result of that, the father of the groom then sends out this the, the invitations to, to, um, to more and to everyone, uh, good and bad. And there are those who respond to the invitation. And when we next see them, they're seated at the banquet clothed in special clothing. But there's one there who doesn't have on the right kind of clothing, and he is ejected uh, from the banquet. The, and then it concludes with this verse, many are called... That's the invitation that goes out to many, but few are choice because it, the, the, the invitation went to many who didn't come. So all in one sense are chosen in, the, in, in a sense that they're all invited. But that's the, the translation of eclectos uh, here, uh, eclegomai or eclectos, the use of that word there, uh, is confusing because it indicates that the one inviting does the choosing, but the only one who is stated, the only one stated in the in the uh, parable who make a choice are those who aren't willing to come, and so those who come are choice because they have on the right clothing, which is tantamount to the uh, imputation of righteousness. So when we look at this passage and it talks about uh, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. What we learned in our study of foreknowledge is that <clears throat> this relates to knowledge ahead of time. What is sometimes called prescience, to know something beforehand. It doesn't have the idea of choosing. It doesn't have the idea of uh, predetermination. It doesn't have the idea of foreordination. It doesn't have the idea of... Uh, of predestination, it is simply the idea of of uh, knowing something ahead of time. So, back to First Peter one one and two. That's just kind of a summary for us. Peter is writing to the elect, and they're going to be defined by those three prepositional clauses. But they're located in these three areas of what we now call Turkey, or what was then referred to as as by by these regional names. And we also call this whole area Asia Minor, but uh, it refers to these uh, five locations. I left one out, residents of Diaspora of Pontus, uh, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Okay, here's the here they are on the map, and it runs in a clockwise direction, Pontus, and then Galatia. And I, I chose this particular map because the coloring was really... Uh, really showed the contrast, and you can really see where these territories were located. Uh, Pontus is up on the Black Sea. Galatia, as you see, is a rather large area, looking at the green here. When Paul went on his first missionary journey, he went to Cyprus first, then he came up here to uh, Pamphylia, then he went to Lystra, Iconium, and Derby. He also went to Antioch and in, in Pisidia up here, and then to Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. And then he went uh, back to Antioch eventually. So 
he was in southern Galatia, and I believe that's the group that he wrote Galatia to. There's a big dispute among scholars as to whether he's writing north to North Galatia or South Galatia. He's writing to the southern Galatians. And this shows you the broad territory that the uh, uh, that, that Galatia covered. You have Cappadocia over here in the yellow, and then to the west you have Asia, uh, the Roman province of Asia, which uh, if you remember on Paul's uh, second missionary journey, he was prohibited from going either to Bithynia or to Asia, and God the Holy Spirit was leading him to Troas and eventually over over into Europe. So Peter is writing to this group, and probably uh, there's a significance to the order in that the messenger who's carrying the epistle was probably taking it to, first to Pontus, then he would travel to Galatia, then to Cappadocia, then back across west to Asia, and then back up to the Bithynia. So that would describe uh, his direction. They're identified as resident aliens in the diaspora. And I believe that the use of the terms here, paradidomoi, which is used of the patriarchs as those who were travelers who were uh, resident aliens in the land that God was going to give them. They didn't own the land. That that was, uh, that's a term restricted to Jews. And the term diaspora, which is also only used a couple of times in the New Testament, but it's always used as a term that refers to uh, to Jewish uh, people, not to, to ethnic Jews. So, uh, Peter is writing to Jewish background believers. He's, uh, and that runs counter probably about, I, I can't put a percentage on it, but there's a small minority that hold this view. Most uh, of your commentators hold the view that it, that this is written to uh, Gentiles who are compared, church age believers who are compared to, um, to the Jews in the diaspora and but there's not comparative language here, and I think that violates the basic rule of literal interpretation. The other thing that you find is those that that take this as some sort of analogy to uh, to the diaspora. It's not really writing primarily to Jews, but it's writing to uh, Gentiles, to church age believers, and just comparing them to the scattering of the Jews uh, in the Old Testament. That they also at the end when Peter talks about uh, greetings from uh, Babylon. They tend to take that as a as a non-literal term. Babylon is a code word for Rome, and I don't believe that. I think that Babylon means Babylon. Babylon was Peter was the apostle to the Jews, and Babylon was the uh, second largest uh, area uh, of Jewish habitation in the diaspora. Had a huge, huge Jewish population, second only to the population in Judea uh, and Jerusalem. So that again would it would support the idea that he's writing to a Jew, primarily a Jewish background audience. So first thing we learn is that the residents of the diaspora that he's talking about, who are Jews who trusted in Jesus as the Messiah. The second thing we learn is that the term elect as a translation of the Greek adjective eklektoi, has as its primary meaning an emphasis on quality. I can't stress that enough. It's not an adjective, you're chosen, you're not. It's a focus on the quality of these individuals. They are choice ones or excellent ones. And we saw from Matthew 22 that that choice is related to their possession, their wearing of the right garments are 
they have imputed righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ, which is the basis for justification. Now, another thing we ought to say about this word elect, because remember there's also an overtone with this word elect in, in terms of the Old Testament uh, choice God made of, of Abraham and his descendants. That's his choice nation. Is, is Israel in the Old Testament. So a question we ought to ask is, this is written to Jewish background believers. Does this idea of you, of calling them elect or choice ones, does this have any overtones related to the Old Testament? Uh, they are choice ones by virtue of every Jew, even today, saved, unsaved, uh, atheist, Buddhist, secular. Every Jew is choice because they are a descendant of Abraham and therefore heirs of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, that doesn't mean they're saved. It just means that in terms of God's plan of of, uh, uh, choosing Israel, that they are set apart or appointed to a purpose. See how that fits within the idea of, of, of eclectoi. So some people have raised that as a possibility, but... I don't think it has anything to do with the Abrahamic covenant. So under the third point here, we another thing we can say about the use of this word is that it's not in reference to Jewish background believers exclusively in terms of their relationship to the Abrahamic covenant. We know this because of the second two phrases. Those second two phrases are by means of the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. See, that didn't happen in the Old Testament. That's not something that is related to God's plan for Israel under the, in the age of Israel or under the dispensation of either the patriarchs or the Mosaic law. You didn't have the sanctification of the Holy Spirit at that time. So that indicates that this is talking about church age believers and is applied to church age believers and it's not doesn't have any overtone in terms of being related to the Abrahamic uh, uh, covenant and their Jewish ethnicity. The second line, for that it's for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, certainly doesn't apply in the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, the sprinkling was of the blood of the bulls and the goats. It was ritual sacrifice. So both of these phrases tell us that, that Peter is addressing uh, church-age believers. They may be Jewish background, but that's really not coming into play when we read this word, uh, eclectoi. Now, the fourth thing I want to say about this in terms of summary is that the excellence or quality that we have have here is further defined for us. It's not just hanging out there in isolation. Why does Peter say your, your first, he says your choice, but he's going to say three things about it. The first thing he says is this choiceness is according to the foreknowledge of God. It's according to the foreknowledge of God. And so in studying that over the last uh, couple of weeks, we pointed out several times, first of all, foreknowledge is defined as knowledge beforehand. It does not refer to something elect, to foreordination, predetermination, or to uh, or any of the other definitions that you usually find in the Reformed camp. It simply means to know something ahead of time. Next thing we learn is that God's identification of them as choice is is 
according to a standard. And the word there, the preposition in the Greek, is the word kata. And it, we see a parallel in Second Thessalonians 2.9 in talking about the Antichrist. Uh, Paul writes, whose coming is according to kata. That's the same preposition in the Greek, according to the working of Satan. So the kata communicates that something is according to a particular standard or maybe on the basis of something. The Antichrist's coming is on the basis of Satan's work or it's because of Satan's work. Those, those three phrases help us to sort of define what according to means. And so we see that this foreknowledge, his God's pressure, uh, God's choice, the identifying us as choice ones is according to something that is known ahead of time by God. That in eternity past, God knew, uh, who would possess perfect righteousness. So this quality is due to or because of or it's based on God's knowledge uh, from eternity past. So when we wrap this up, four things. First of all, in eternity past, God in his omniscience knew who would respond to the invitation to trust in Christ as Savior. He's not being arbitrary. You don't just have God saying, okay, I'm going to create ten people, four of them I'm going to designate will be saved, and six of them will not be saved. Even if you expand it and say, well, the four who will be saved will be saved through faith, God is still picking who will be saved and who won't be saved, and it's not predicated upon any responsibility on their part. And we're not told anywhere in Scripture what the criteria or condition is for God's choosing. So in uh, Calvinism, it's expressed as unconditional election, meaning that God chooses them on the basis of no condition, which makes it very arbitrary. God is just saying, I'm going to select you, but not you. God, and, and they exclude the idea of God's prescience, his foreknowledge, his knowledge of future things from that decision. Because in Calvinist theology, God can't know something unless he's already determined it. God does not know the alternatives, the hypotheticals, or what philosophers call the counterfactuals, the things that could have, would have, should have happened, but didn't happen. Uh, God just knows the knowable. He doesn't know the thing. I mean, God just knows what will happen. He doesn't know what might happen. So we see the eternity past. Part of what goes into God's thinking is his knowledge of future contingent events and what will actually take place. So we graph that this way. The outer circle represents all the knowledge that God has. He is omniscient. There never was a time when God did not know all of the knowable. He immediately perceives it from all time, for all time. It is a direct knowledge that God has. It, he never learns anything. He never acquires knowledge or loses knowledge. He always knows everything. And that includes all of the possible as well as all of the actual. Foreknowledge relates to what God knows in advance will happen. And that goes into his uh, decision-making as he makes this selection. And the choiceness is a result that his plan is that those who trust in Christ 
will receive imputed righteousness, and those who trust in Christ will be the choice ones. And that is the determination of his plan. He is not individually determining who will and who won't. He is saying those who trust in Christ, those who respond to the invitation, are the ones who are clothed with the right garments at the banquet. They're the ones who have imputed righteousness. Those are the ones who have the quality. They are the choice ones. So that's point two. Those who respond in faith alone received the imputation of perfect righteousness from God and are declared righteous. So they are choice because they have something they didn't earn. They have Christ's righteousness. They have not merited it because the merit is at the cross. The merit is Christ's righteousness. It's not faith. In theology, everybody seems to want to put merit somewhere. Uh, Calvinists often say faith is a gift. Well, that means that faith in Christ is the gift. It's different from the faith you had when you got up this morning and you were running late and you ran out to your car and, and uh, to put the key in it and started. You believed it would start. Now, so if it didn't, then you were surprised because you believed it would start. And, and so that, that's the issue is, is that's faith. But it's the same kind of faith with Christ. But a Calvinist will say, no, 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 it's not because that's not saving faith. It's not the right kind of faith. But the Bible says it's the object of faith. Anybody can believe, just like it's a perfect picture in the Lord's table. Anybody can eat. Anybody can drink. And that is a picture of accepting or receiving Christ into our life. Anyone can do it. But uh, it's based upon their decision. It's not based upon God's decision. He's not choosing who will and who won't. It's the object of faith. It's the work of Christ that gives merit to the individual. That's from the imputation of Christ's righteousness. So those who respond in faith alone receive the imputation of perfect righteousness from God and are declared righteous. They are the ones who possess that quality. They become choice ones because they possess perfect righteousness. So third, we see from this that God's knowledge beforehand, his prior knowledge or prescience, perceives who would believe and who will not. And on that basis of knowing that these will believe and receive imputed righteousness, they are the choice ones. And this idea of being choice or select ones, when you look through all of the word study literature, uh, it goes back to concepts in the ancient world, especially in ancient Greece and the democracy of Athens, that those who were elected or chosen at, at, in the election were appointed to a responsibility. But the focus is not on the process of choosing. The focus is on the process of being appointed to a responsibility. So that's also uh, sort of a, a, a nuance that is part of this concept that those who are choice receive the perfect righteousness of Christ so that they can fulfill the responsibility that God has given them. And so this leads to the second of the three uh, prepositional phrases that we have. They're sanctified by the Holy Spirit. They're set apart by the Holy Spirit. So this idea of being choice is related to a quality that everyone, every believer has, perfect righteousness of Christ. And how do we see, receive that? 
We, we receive that by our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And in that identification with Christ, we are set apart. So these are all tightly and closely related uh, concepts between uh, being choice ones, receiving imputed righteousness, and uh, being set apart positionally by God the Holy Spirit. Fourth thing I've noted, and I've, that I've noted, is that inclusion in this group is not because of faith. The phrase "because of faith" would be expressed in Greek with a preposition "dia" plus an accusative case, and it would indicate that faith was the cause of of a person's salvation. But the Bible says we're saved through faith. Faith is simply a means by which something is accomplished. It's not the cause. The cause is. Uh, the uh, the love of God. He is the one who provides salvation. So inclusion in this group is not because of faith, for that makes faith meritorious. The merit or the value is the death of Christ, not the kind of faith uh, that a person has. Now, that helps us to understand that first phrase, we are choice ones according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, but it doesn't stop there. It's not a period. It's not even a semicolon. It is a comma because there's a second prepositional phrase that qualifies and helps us understand the basis for being choice ones. It is by means of the uh, Spirit, by means of the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, this is an extremely important doctrine. And the term sanctification actually has two senses or three senses to it in the in the uh, New Testament and uh, through, throughout the, and it's pictured through the sacrifices in the Old Testament but first of all let's just look at the word group that's used there these uh, words that I have up here on the screen represent the words that we have in the Gr- Greek text all related to one another the word that's used here in this text is the noun Hagiasmas. That's the first word in the top of the list. Hagiasmas. It's used ten times. It's typically translated holiness, uh, sanctification, or consecration. Now, words like holiness, consecration, sanctification are words that you hear teenagers tweeting about all the time, right? Everybody knows what these. You use them every time you're at the grocery store, right? These words have basically become marginalized and antiquated in the English language so that most people don't know what they mean and a lot of Christians don't have any idea what they mean and especially if they're reading some of the uh, dumbed-down translations, they don't have a clue what, what these words mean. They were great words when the Bible was translated into English and they communicated to people because people were educated in the, you know, after the Protestant Reformation, were educated in the local church, and they were taught what these words mean, and they were chosen because they were words that were part of the vocabulary of the population in England. I'm thinking about the King James Bible, that these were words that would communicate, they were understood, but not so much anymore. Now, the noun that we're often very familiar with is the Second word in the list, it's hagias, hagias. And this is the noun that's usually translated holy or sacred. It's also translated saints in some places. Anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is called a saint. They are a sanctified one. 
There, there aren't just the biblical saints. Uh, they are, this term refers to every single believer because it's a reflection of the doctrine I'm teaching here, which is called positional sanctification or positional truth, that we were positionally or legally set apart unto God at the instant of our salvation. So that's the idea of hagias means something that is holy or sacred. That's how it's usually translated. But the idea is simply something that's set apart to the service of God. That's the core meaning for for this whole word group. Uh, the verb hagiazo means to make something holy or to consecrate something or to sanctify it. Basically, it means to set something aside to the service of God. In the Bible, you have a lot of different things that are set apart to the service of God. You have people, you have sacrifices, you have places such as the temple or the tabernacle or an altar that are sanctified. They're made holy. Now, when most of us think of the word holy, what do we think of? We think of the contrast between good and bad, between evil and good, that something is holy is pure, morally pure. Something is holy, it is it is something that is good and righteous. And we often think of the word holy as a synonym for righteous. But that's not what the root word means. You go back into the Old Testament, the core verb for that's translated holy and translated as hagias is the word kadash. And it's interesting that in Hebrew, uh, when you are, are saying a prayer, certain kinds of prayers, it's called the kiddush. So you hear the same consonants in there, kadosh, kiddish, you know, Q-D-S-H. That's the, uh, those are the three consonants in that word. And a kiddish is a prayer, a prayer of sanctification, basically. You're praying for uh, something uh, to be set apart to God in some sense in, in the prayer. You say kiddish at a funeral when someone has died, at a, uh, when you're uh, sitting shiva for somebody, you say a, a, a kiddish. So it's that idea of, of uh, something that's set apart to God. One form of that, that noun was used in a masculine and feminine form to refer to the temple prostitutes at the fertility religions for the worship of Baal and the Asherah. So the temple prostitutes, the temple hookers, the temple uh uh, whores that were working there in uh, in these various fertility was, were called uh, Kedeshim. Now, how in the world can they be morally pure? They're not. But they're set apart to the service of their God. See, that's the core thing. You talk about the, the, the altar. How can an altar be morally pure? How can a... How can the utensils that are used in the uh, sacrifice and the butchering of the animals of the sacrifice be morally pure? How can they be immoral? They can't. Rocks and wood and metal can be neither morally pure nor morally impure, but they are set apart to the service of God. Now, this is very important for us to understand because Believers and a lot of unbelievers just have a hard time understanding the fact that you can be sanctified and consecrated to God and holy and be out of fellowship. 
There are a lot of Christians who believe that if you commit certain kinds of sin, then either you weren't saved or you're, you've lost your salvation because they don't understand this important doctrine of positional sanctification that we're, right, we're declared legally righteous and we are set apart to God at the instant of our salvation and we can't lose that. And it doesn't have anything to do with who we are or what we've done. It has everything to do with who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. So we have the noun hagias, the verb hagiazo, and then another noun hagiasmos describing the quality of holiness or uh, consecration or sanctification. And uh, that is the word uh, that we have here is hagiasmos. Now, when we look at what the Bible teaches about sanctification, I use this chart. It's a time-honored chart. This is one of the best charts I've ever seen to help people visualize what we're talking about. There's two areas of our relationship to God. One is our eternal realities on the the left, and the one on the right has to do with the temporal realities. At the instant that we trust in Christ as Savior, we are identified by God the Holy Spirit, that's what baptism signifies as an identification. Romans 6, 3 through 6, we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And we're identified with Christ so that we are placed in Christ, so that we are sanctified. We are set apart forever and ever in Christ. We are no longer what we were before we were saved. We are now new creatures in Christ. Everything is different. Also, a reminder on this chart, three stages or phases of salvation. Phase one has to do with justification. When you trust in Christ as Savior, God imputes or credits to your account the perfect righteousness of Christ, and then he legally declares you righteous. Does that make you righteous? No. When the judge declared that that O.J. Simpson was not guilty, did that make him Righteous? No. Did it make him not guilty? No, it made him not guilty legally, and that's it. It is a legal definition, legal concept. That's what it is for us. We're legally declared righteous, but we're declared righteous because we possess something. We possess the perfect righteousness of Christ. Then, after we're saved, the issue is our spiritual growth our spiritual life, and then when we die, we're absent from the body, we're face-to-face with the Lord. Now, we also talk about these three areas, justification, spiritual life, and our glorification, in terms of positional sanctification. That's what happens at the instant that we're justified, we're positionally sanctified, but experiential sanctification refers to our ongoing spiritual growth, and then when we die, we're now free from the sin nature, and we are uh, we are sanctified. So at the uh, I lost a couple of words at the bottom of the slide. It's when we're justified, we're freed from the penalty of sin. We're not going to go to the lake of fire. We're no longer spiritually dead. We're now spiritually alive. We're freed from the power of sin as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're ultimately freed from the presence of the sin nature when we are uh, when we're glorified. Now. I want you to turn your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 21, going all the way back into the Old Testament to the third book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, 
chapter 21. And Leviticus 21 is, I think, one of the more interesting passages in the Old Testament because there's some things that we never quite get right when we talk about some of the Old Testament ritual. And here we have regulations for the priests. Regulations for the priests. And I want to pick up the context and go back to verse 1. The Lord says to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, None shall defile himself for the dead among his people. So this has to do with ritual defilement. If they're ritually defiled, they can't go into the temple and they can't serve the Lord. They've already been set apart positionally as priests. When they were inaugurated as priests, they, they, were, um, they were anointed or sprinkled, and that sets them apart as priests for the rest of their life. Then when they're at the right age, they can start serving in the, in the tabernacle or temple, serving as a priest, but they can defile themselves. So this is talking about experiential, experiential uh, sanctification. None shall defile himself for the dead among his people. In other words, not touching. If you touched a corpse, you would be ritually defiled. Is that a sin? Not at all. Ritual defilement is not the same as a sin. Ritual defilement, though, is whenever you eat the wrong thing or you go to the wrong place or if a woman gives birth, different things like that were, uh, were, would ritually defile a person. And if you examine these things, what you discover is that the, the food that was unclean usually involves a scavenger of some sort. It's associated with something dead. Why do we have death? We have death because of Adam's sin, because of the fall. And because of, and so God is giving a visual lesson here that whenever you are, that you were to avoid certain things that, that were, were there because of sin. And so he's teaching about the ubiquitousness of sin. And so he says, you can't defile yourself by touching the dead, except, notice there's an exception, for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, and his brother, also his virgin sister is near to him, who has had no husband, for he may defile himself. So if any of his close relatives die, uh, it's okay to touch their body. But anyone else, no. Verse 4, Otherwise he shall not defile himself, being a chief man or a leader. The idea there is a leader among his people uh, to profane himself. They shall not make any ball place on their head. So this has to do, all these things have to do with things that, that pagan priests would do. They shouldn't make a ball place on their heads. That's it's almost like the tonsure that, that Roman Catholic priests in the Middle Ages would have, uh, same kind of thing. Uh, nor shall they shave the edges of their beards. In other words, they, 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 there was a certain way they could not trim their beard because that's how pagan priests did it. Uh, nor make any cuttings in their flesh. So they couldn't uh, do any self-scarification in order to, because that was also part of pa- pagan priestly practice. And then verse 6 says, They shall be holy. There is the word uh, kadash, kadash. Kadash. They shall be holy or set apart to their God and not profane the name of their God. So there we see a contrast. They'll set apart to God to honor him, and they're not going to make God something that is common or profane. 
For they offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire and the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. This is a command. They shall be set apart to God's service, follow certain regulations. They shall not take a wife who is a harlot or a defiled woman, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. He is set apart to his God. So there are regulations as to who he could marry and who he couldn't marry. Now, where does it say he has to believe the messianic hope? That he has to be regenerate. That he has to be justified. Are there any spiritual qualifications there? None at all. That's one of the most fascinating things to discover is that they didn't have to be saved. They just had to fit certain physical qualifications in order to be a priest because ritual is not the same thing as reality. Ritual is just depicting certain things about reality. And so a priest could serve God and not be saved, but he still went through, went through the ritual, and it depicts certain spiritual truths. Then we come to the verse I want to go to, which is verse 8. Therefore, you shall consecrate him. See, that's sanctification. That's positional sanctification. He is set apart at the beginning of his service as a priest. He is positionally set apart to serve God. Therefore, you shall set him apart. That's the idea there. For he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you. He shall be treated distinctively and uniquely by you. For I, the Lord, who sanctify him, I've set him apart. It doesn't mean he's saved. It means God sets him apart to serve him because he's a descendant of Aaron. He's a, he's a Levite, not because he's trusted in the messianic hope. I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am, uh, am holy. I am unique. Is how I would translate that. That's what holiness he's got, and what part of what makes God unique is all of his attributes, including his righteousness and his justice. So that gives a little bit of an insight into the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament background and Old Testament meaning. Now, there's a couple of other passages that I want to look at in the New Testament that emphasize this idea of positional sanctification. This is the use of the, the noun that we're looking at, hagiosmos. It's found in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 where Paul says, But we should also give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification. I chose this verse because of that language. And that word there is a preposition in by means of sanctification by the Spirit. So it's not just God didn't just choose you. Uh, there's not just a selection process, but it is through sanctification by the Holy Spirit. There has to be faith in Christ, and God the Holy Spirit then identifies you with Christ, and you are sanctified. So <clears throat> this is a ver the, the use of the verb, which has a different idea than the noun. So it's still, it's here it focuses a little more on God makes a selection process, but what's the standard? Well, the standard is Romans 8, 28, and 29, and 1 Peter 1, 2. That's according to the foreknowledge of God. From the beginning of salvation, for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit, and faith in the truth. So this is positional at this point. It's talking about what happens at the instant of salvation. 
Acts 26.18 is another place where the noun is used in sense of positional sanctification. Uh, Paul is talking about those who have <coughs> trusted in Jesus. He said God is going to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among who? Those who have been sanctified. It's a perfect tense participle. Perfect tense always means action that is, it's not just action in the past, it's action that was completed in the past, so that their sanctification is complete in the past. So this isn't talking about experiential sanctification, which is ongoing through our life, and it's not talking about ultimate sanctification, which only happens when we die. It's talking about that which has been fully, totally completed, and that is uh, positional sanctification. And how does that occur? By faith in Christ. We trust in him. We are positionally sanctified. Now, we have to distinguish this from Romans passages such as Romans 6.19, where Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Just as you presented your members, as that's talking about your body, just as you presented your body, your life as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, uh, that was when they were unbelievers, resulting in further lawlessness. So now, he says, present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Now, they're already saved and sanctified positionally, but now he's telling them you need to walk in obedience and righteousness, and that will result in experiential sanctification, your spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. Romans 6.22 says, But now, having been freed from sin, it took place in the past, it's completed action, and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. So that's talking about sanctification experientially, and the result is ultimate sanctification, eternal life. Another use of the term in terms of experiential sanctification is the verb in John 17, 17, where Jesus prays to the Father, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. He's talking about his disciples. Now, are they already positionally sanctified? Yes. So here it's talking about experiential sanctification, their experiential growth. In 1 Corinthians 1, 2, this is one of the clearest passages because we know that Paul is addressing a bunch of really confused, disobedient Christians living in Corinth. They were involved in all kinds of sins. They were divisive. They were arrogant. They were licentious. They were overlooking some sins. They were taking other uh, Christians in the congregation to uh, to court. They were suing each other. There were all kinds of problems. They were getting drunk and having uh, and and being gluttonous at the Lord's table. All of these things were going on. They were just. They, they were so carnal that, that, that that's the picture we always have of the concept of carnality uh, in the Bible. And Paul addressed them and says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified. And again, it's a perfect tense use of the verb. It's completed action. To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. So all these carnal Corinthians who are involved in all of these different sins are saints, not because they have such a morally pure life, but because they've been set apart in Christ and they have imputed righteousness. 
They're saints by calling with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So this is a great passage emphasizing positional sanctification. Okay, one last verse on this, Hebrews 9.13, For if the blood and bulls of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling, notice we're going to get into sprinkling at the end of 1 Peter 1.2, uh, this is the same same uh, idea, the, the, the blood of bulls and goats sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. Now, those sacrifices were f- for sin offerings, trespass offerings, so whenever they would become ritually defiled, they would have to bring a sacrifice, and it was the sprinkling of that blood on the altar that would restore them to ritual fellowship with God, and they could once again worship in the temple. So this brings us to the doctrine of positional uh, positional sanctification. This is the idea that we are identified with Christ and become legally and positionally set apart to God at the instant of salvation. So in terms of the first point, the believer is united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection according to Romans 6, 3 through 6. I've stated that several times. Second, this act sets Christians apart. We are set apart in Christ. It's that position of being in Christ that sets us apart from the world, that makes us distinct from others. That's 1 Corinthians 1-2. Third thing we've seen is that sanctification is accomplished through the death of Christ. Hebrews 13-12 says, Therefore... Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, that's his death, suffered outside the gate. So Christ's death is the basis for sanctification. Hebrews 10.10, we read, By that will we have been sanctified, perfect tense, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So there, that's positional sanctification. It's been completed. Acts 26.18, the fourth point, tells us that this sanctification is applied at the instant of faith in Christ. We have been sanctified by faith in me. Right here, the last line. It's that perfect participle again. It's completed action. Now, why is this doctrine so important? Well, one reason it's important is that this is an absolute reality that can never be destroyed by any sin or act that that we're engaged in. We did nothing to be sanctified, and we can do nothing to lose our sanctification. You did nothing to be saved, so you can do nothing to lose your salvation. That's something you can tweet. If you're into tweeting, I don't think anybody here is. But that's the point. If And many people, if you are listening to somebody and they say that somebody can lose their salvation, it doesn't matter how you well you thought they had a grace gospel if they say there's something you can do to lose their salvation, there's something in the woodpile that says that you can do something to get your salvation. You can't do something to lose it unless you're doing something to get it. And that's always the clue. There's nothing that we can do. And that's great comfort because we all sin. And we're all, and at times we even shock ourselves with some of our sins. It doesn't shock or surprise God because in his omniscience he knew every sin we would ever commit and he imputed it to Christ on the cross and Christ paid the penalty. 
So the second reason it's important is because every one of us is righteous because we possess Christ's righteousness. It's not because we're moral. It's not because we behave correctly. There's a little bumper sticker that says it's not that, that Christians are better. It's just that we're, we're, we're forgiven, and that captures it. We're not better than anybody else. We're just forgiven. We've realized that forgiveness in terms of positional sanctification, and that means we can relax. We don't have to be concerned about our future. We know that if we die tonight or tomorrow, we're going to be absent from the body face-to-face with the Lord, and we can be sure of that. We need to make sure that every one of our kids and grandchildren clearly understand that gospel. It's never too young to start communicating the gospel to kids. So the third reason this is important is that we realize that every every one of us is perfectly sanctified even though we commit a lot of nasty sins. We're still set apart because it doesn't have anything to do with us. It has to do with Christ. So experiential sanctification has to do with our spiritual growth. Positional has to do with our relationship to Christ that cannot be, be lost. Now, the last thing that we see in 1 Peter 1-2 is he talks about the fact that we are set, that this were choice, according to the foreknowledge, by the sanctification of the Holy Spirit and for the purpose of obedience and sprinkling of the blood. Now, I'll come back and say a little bit more about that next week, but look at Hebrews 10-22 as we close. There, the writer of Hebrews says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's the idea. This is post-salvation cleansing. That's what's depicted in the Old Testament. The Old Testament sacrificial system uh, pictured... Uh, the only time you have sprinkling re- referenced as a, as where it's positional is in relation to the consecration of a priest or the high priest. But the word is most frequently used in terms of ongoing sin offerings, that when someone sinned, they would have to bring a sacrifice and be cleansed of that sin so that they could worship at the temple. That's what Peter is talking about here, reminding them of at the end, that that your choice according to the foreknowledge of God, by means of the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, and that relates to the imputation of Christ's righteousness, but it doesn't stop there. That's what Paul says. It says, it says you're a new creature. You once were bond slave to sin. Now you're a slave to righteousness. Live like you're a slave to righteousness. So that's what Peter says here, is that the, the, this all of this was done for the purpose that we would be obedient to God, and sometimes we're not, so we have to recover through confession of sin. That's the sprinkling or the application of the death of Christ. First John one seven, we are for we are cleansed continuously by the blood of Christ. Every time we confess our sins, there's a sprinkling, a cleansing, as it were, from the fact that Christ died on the cross for our sins. So this is stated over and over and over again, and this gives us great confidence because we don't need to focus on our failures. We need to focus on the cross and the grace of God so that we, every time we stumble, we can just confess, pick ourselves up, and keep going forward. Everybody runs into these problems, and too many people just get overwhelmed with guilt in the Christian life 
which is, is, is like handicapping yourself terribly in terms of spiritual growth. It's a great doctrine that we just continue to go forward because of Christ's death on the cross. We realize forgiveness every time we confess sin. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to study uh, this evening and to focus on these important doctrines to be reminded that we are choice, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ did for us on the cross and that we have received his righteousness that you have imputed or reckoned to our account and that that is the basis for our relationship with you, not anything that we have done. But all of that was for a purpose that we might obey you, walk in obedience, which means to walk by the Spirit, and applying the death of your Son through confession of sin every single time that we commit sin, we recognize afresh that forgiveness that we have in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.